Morning, one and all. My name's Matt Fuller, if um, we've not met. Right, here we are. Uh, if you're joining us, we'll work our way uh, through this letter, 1 Corinthians, in um, blocks. Uh, we'll have a little pause after this week, and we'll come back to uh, chapter 8 in uh, five or so weeks' time, I think. But uh, let me pray. Let me pray as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, we uh, recognize and praise you for the variety of your word. And some things we draw back and look at the, the, the grand scheme of who you are. And other passages such as this, they're very specific and detailed and uh, they address us in the intimacy of our lives. So Father, help us to hear this rightly, to understand your word rightly, to hear the force and the, the tone of this text rightly, so that with our lives and with our bodies we honor you. Right in Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, we're busy people. What, what do you do when you've got a limited amount of time? So you find yourself in, I don't know, in London for a weekend. What do you do? You have a weekend in London. Um, what's going to be on your agenda? You know, you've just got 48 hours or so. You probably hit some of the big things. Uh, you probably won't pop around to my house unless you know me. That's not a great tourist attraction. In fact, please don't. We like our street. It's quiet. Um, what do you do if you've got a limited amount of time? What do you, if you've got a week? Okay, I've got a week in Washington. What should I do? What should I go and visit? Wherever it is. I've got a week in Manhattan. What am I going to do? You might ask people. You want to make the best use of it, of your time. What do you know? If, what do you do if you've got limited time to live? That affects your decisions, of course. You're told by your doctor, or oh, six to twelve months. Well, you know, there's always some ambiguity on that. That can rumble for five years. But um, if you're told that, you probably don't think, right? Well, I think I'll start a new business. Uh, that's what I'll do. A new business venture. I tell you what, I've never, I've never swum. I'm going to get fit and then try and swim the whole coast of the UK. You know, if you've got a finite amount of time, you're probably not going to go for those sort of big ventures. Actually, if you know you've got a limited amount of time, 48 hours in a city, a week in a country, six months to live, if you know you've got finite time, you do ask yourself, well, what matters most? It's going to frame your decisions. Of course it is. And this text we come to, the, certainly the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is talking about, well, as he has been since chapter 5, sexual ethics. Essentially, he's saying, given, given what is to come, maybe you want to stay as you are. Maybe you want to remain. That is not a political comment. It's just the, it's just the dominant word of this particular text. Don't, don't, don't let your mind go there. Um, but remain as you are may well be the most useful thing or the best thing for you to do. I've scribbled down uh, some of the references uh, on the page there. We had it last time in the first half of chapter 7 where um, Paul was addressing uh, well, a slightly different question, really. What should we do with our marriages? Well, remain is uh, chapter 8, remain in them. Uh, and uh, chapter 11, oh, look, remain in your marriage unless you've been divorced, in which case remain single. And, and then today, verse 20, verse 24, verse 26, verse 40, maybe remain as you are. 
if you're single. So last time to the marrieds, look, remain as you are. Uh, this time to the singles, well, perhaps remain as you are. Allow what is to come. Allow the knowledge of what Christ has done for you and, and your future, your eternity. Allow that to shape your decisions and maybe, maybe stay as you are. If you are joining us, the whole section, chapters 5 to 7, is about sexual ethics. Um, and there have been numerous questions that the Corinthians have asked. In one sense, the headline over the whole section will be chapter 6 and verse 20. Honor God with your bodies. Uh, last time, the emphasis was if you're married, you do that within your marriage. You, maintain, you remain in your marriage and you honor your, the Lord with your body by honoring your spouse with your body was kind of the main, was certainly part of the main cause last time. The question in this section is a bit different, and it's not one that immediately jumps out at many of us, but it's this. Should young people get married? So verse 25. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, this word virgins, how do you translate it? Some go for it's betrothed or those who are engaged. That seems a little overly specific given the arguments he makes. I think it is just young people is probably the best way of translating it. But either way, the, the, the arguments that Paul makes would apply if you're engaged and not yet married or indeed just single and not married at all. Um, I think the arguments apply either way. So it doesn't really matter. But the question in verse 25, should, I'm going to take it as young people, should young people get married? Essentially, his answer is going to be this. Do what you want. Marriage and singleness, they're neither here nor there. Keeping God's commandments, that is what matters. So you might summarize perhaps the whole of chapter 7 a bit like this. Uh, the Bible insists... Marriage is good, and singleness is good. And Paul here suggests that singleness may be better. Okay? So it insists marriage good, singleness good. Both good, okay? Have to say that. But Paul says, you know what? Maybe better to stay single. Now, we need to hear the tone with which he says that. That's quite important. He's not giving a command. So chapter 6, we had commands, perhaps most acutely. Chapter 6, verse 18. Flee, flee from sexual immorality. Run away, run away. Command, okay? Very different tone here in chapter 7. He's giving advice. And so verse 25, look about single people, whether they should get married. I have no command from the Lord. I give a judgment. If you want my opinion, here it is. And I am an apostle. <laughs> Verse 36, um, the end of verse 36, oh, look, if you want to marry, do what you want. Or verse 40, look, in my judgment, you're happier to stay single, but do what you want. Do you see, there's a very different tone here. It's not an imperative, it's not a command, and therefore, we don't want to hear it as such, or indeed impose that upon anyone else. He's saying, look, live as you want. Marriage is good, singleness is good. Look, I would just put it to you, maybe you've not thought about it in these terms before, it may be better to stay single. Maybe. Not for everyone, but you want to think about that. That might be better. But there's a difference in tone. 
let's get into it. Uh, we're going to look at three main points, but you have to, first of all, he has this section, verses 17 to 24, that seem a little bit off point. This whole section, chapters 5 to 7, all about sexual ethics. And then we have a little bit of a tangent on whether you want to become a Jew uh, and whether you want to change your status. Seems a little bit off point. But he's just making this same argument. Remain as you are. Last time he applied it to marriage, this time to singleness. But maybe you want to remain as you are. So verse 17, nevertheless, each person should live or remain as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as he's called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. That's important. This is not something specific just to Corinth. I'd say this wherever I went on my travels, I'd give the same advice, okay? So it's not just specific to Corinth. And essentially he says, look, learn to be content in the situation you find yourself. And he illustrates it with circumcision, race, and slavery, class. See, he takes, it seems to me, two culturally less controversial issues, and then you can apply it to marriage. So first, this issue of, of race. So verse 18, were you a Jew? Was a man already circumcised when he was called? That is, were you a Jew? Well, stay that way. Or what about the other way around? Were you a Gentile? Was a man uncircumcised when he was called a Gentile? Well, don't become a Jew. Because when you become a Christian, your ethnicity is neither here nor there. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile or British or Australian or Namibian or whatever it may be. It doesn't matter. It's neither here nor there. It's just a completely secondary issue. What matters? Well, verse 19, obeying God. That's what matters. What about class? Uh, verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Well, don't let that trouble you. Although, if you can get your freedom, do so. That's obviously a good thing to do. For the one who was a slave when called to have faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, verse 22, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of human beings. Don't sell yourself into slavery. And in the culture of the time, you might get a better job that way. You might be a laborer who was very knowledgeable. You might sell yourself into slavery to be an accountant in an affluent household. So it could be a job promotion. But it's neither here nor there, he really says. It's just not the most important thing. Verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person is responsible should God remain in the situation you were in when God called you. When you become a Christian, it changes everything. And all these other issues that may have been important before, they become secondary. This doesn't quite work, but I've been, um, I read recently uh, uh, a very enjoyable biography, George Washington. And um, uh, it's very striking. It's 1776, big year, um, if you're American. Uh, but big year for George Washington. Obviously, beginning of the year, he's appointed commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. The sort of fate of a fledgling nation rests upon his shoulders. And um, triumphs in Boston, disaster in New York. It's all going wrong. Everyone thinks he should be sacked. Massive year in, in, the, in the Continental War. And he, about three or four times a week, writes home 
to his brother, his much younger brother, who is carrying out building work on uh, Washington's house in Mount Vernon, Virginia. And you get all these details. I'm not sure about moving the fireplace. Leave the fireplace where it is. How is the work going on with the kitchen extension? Is the kitchen extension going quite well? And uh, I think for Washington, it was relaxing. It was, I'm under enormous stress. I haven't got a crossword to do. Uh, I'll just write home letters to my brother about home extensions. I mean, it seems utterly bizarre. But there it was. He was watching TV programs on how to extend your house to relax himself. If you do that, George Washington did it too, essentially. Uh, You're in good company. But part of you, you read this and you want to say, George, if I may, it doesn't matter. Those details, they don't really matter. You have now a far greater title, a much more important role. George, you're a legend of history, or about to become one. Who cares about your kitchen? Who cares about moving the fireplace? You're not even going to live there for two decades or more. What are you, what are you doing? And Paul is essentially saying to the Christian here, Look, you become a follower of Jesus Christ. He has spent his blood to buy you out of slavery and win for you an eternity with God in heaven. And so these other things become smaller details in the scheme of that. Slave, non-slave. Oh, if you can buy yourself out of slavery, that's good. It might be a much better thing to do. It gives you more freedom. But married, not married. Jewish or Gentile unimportant relative to what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. So he takes these, it seems, two slightly less controversial issues and then applies them to marriage. Really, he said, well, young people, should, should they get married? I don't mind. Marriage is nothing, really. Singleness is nothing. What matters is keeping the commandments of God, following him, obeying him. That is what matters. And so then finally, we get to the the question itself in verse 25. What should they do? And essentially, Paul is going to say, look, my opinion is there are some real advantages to remaining single. You need to bear in mind, this is not everything that the Apostle Paul writes about marriage. Turn to something like Ephesians 5, and he is much more positive. But... He has some three reasons, really. He says, look, I'm not commanding you, but just think through these three. It may be better for you to stay single. Let's work through them then briefly. Uh, Singleness can spare you troubles in a crisis, 25 to 28. The world is passing away, 29 to 31. And marriage brings extra concerns, 32 to 35. So his conclusion is going to be, well, marriage is good, but singleness may be better. It may be. First then, verses 25 to 28. Singleness can spare you troubles in a crisis. We'll go through these fairly quickly. Let's pick it up, verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain, man for a, to remain as he is. Are you pledged, engaged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. If you do marry, you've not sinned. If a young woman marries, young man marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. 
And most who are married read that and chuckle uh, and think, well, yes, I think he was talking about me. Um, just did a sort of warm chuckle. Now, of course, there's a question here. What is the present crisis? Verse 26, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a main man to remain as he is. Well, some people say the present crisis is everything, the whole of history since the resurrection of Jesus. I think that's pretty unlikely. That's never how the word crisis is used elsewhere in the New Testament. It seems to load an enormous amount onto that one word. So I don't think that's true. Elsewhere in the scriptures, 1 Timothy 5, Paul would say to widows, you should marry and have children. So there's clearly something particular, peculiar to this crisis, which sort of makes him more lean towards singleness here. Something in the present crisis. What is it? What is this present crisis in Corinth? The truth is, we have no idea. Could be famine. There's famine spoken of in Acts 11. There's references here in 1 Corinthians 11 to a lack of food. But we have no idea, really. That is really a guess. But I think his point is, sometimes there are situations which mean it's better to hold back from marrying. Of course, in the first century culture, if you marry, the, there's no contraception. You'd expect children to come along fairly quickly, probably. So I think I read this and think in the UK, we're not in a present crisis. I mean, either side, there's sort of, you know, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's not a crisis for the church. Or maybe if you're living in Iran and face intense persecution, you might think to yourself, it's better not to marry. Because if I'm murdered, at least my spouse or widow, maybe in that situation. In a crisis, a real crisis, lives at stake, what is normally a blessing of a spouse and children can become a real emotional burden as you fear for them and worry about them. He's saying, look, singleness, in a time of crisis, that can spare you troubles, extra anxieties. Second reason why it may be best to stay single, look, the world is passing away, verses 29 to 31. Now, clearly he's using hyperbole here. We'll come back to that. But verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Now, having spent the rest of the chapter saying to married couples, stay together, I don't think he would literally be saying, look, stay together, but pretend you're not married. Okay, live in separate houses, etc. That, that would be an absolute nonsense. So we're not to take this literally. Simply he says, you don't mourn. What elsewhere, classically Romans 12, we'll say, no, you must mourn rightly. Mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. 1 Thessalonians 4, someone's died, grieve, grieve. So he's not, don't take these things literally, but he is saying the fact that this world is passing away relativizes the joys, the sadnesses of this world. He's saying don't be obsessed with your spouse 
Don't mourn as if there's no hope. Don't celebrate a triumph in this life as if it's the best thing this world has to offer. Don't live frivolously when you know that people need to hear about Jesus Christ. Don't, be, don't allow your life to be dominated by stuff, possessions. When you buy something, you're not going to keep it in eternity. Sit lightly to them. It's a general principle of the Scriptures, I guess. You could apply it to any scenario. But here Paul introduces it. He says, there's a danger when you marry, you can become too comfortable in this world. You're single, you don't give a hoot about crockery and curtains and stuff like that. And then you marry and you just want to settle down and sort of feather the nest and make everything comfortable and just right. And you think, don't do that. Who gives us stuff? You're just passing through this world. In the light of eternity, make a sober assessment of what you have, what you don't, of your joys, of your sorrows. This world will pass. So don't make it home. Well, we know that. You have to, you're on the road somewhere and you go and stay one night at a hotel and it's not a high-end hotel. And so you spend the night in the hotel and the bed is pretty uncomfortable and you don't sleep great. And you get up in the morning and the shower goes, oh, oh, it's useless. It takes me ages to wash my hair. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it's inconvenient, it's mildly irritating, but you're only there one night. And then you go to your home and your nice bed. Terrific. So really, the fact that it's only one night, it does undermine the disappointments. That's his point here. This world is passing. We don't live in our own house. Obviously, we live in a church house. Uh, towards the end of this week, the, the flat we own, the tenants rang up and say, oh, there's been a water spillage and the ceiling's just collapsed. And not this week. This week's been bad enough. Uh, I don't need a collapsed ceiling this week. Uh, anyway, I had to deal with a bit of that. Then, um, you know, you get so wound up by... And then, right, 1 Corinthians 7. Ah, don't be engrossed in the things of this world. This present world in its present form is passing away. And my wretched flat in its ceiling. They're all passing away. They don't matter too much. Actually, this did me much good. Don't get too irritated when your ceiling collapses. Don't get too excited when you get a new sofa, whatever it may be. Eternity relativizes this world. Let me read one sentence which I, I found. It's blunt, but it is a good summary. The prospect of a new heavens and earth takes the edge off prevailing troubles on this earth and may even enable a believer to endure a marital or social status they find unsatisfying or undesirable and glorify God within it. That's a blunt sentence. But it is a true summary of what he's saying here. You see that? The prospect of a new heavens and a new earth, it does take the edge off the troubles of this life. And the knowledge that that is coming, it may enable a believer to endure a marriage, singleness, social status, whatever it may be, that you don't want, but you can still glorify God within it. And so this week amongst us, there are some who are grieving the loss of dreams. 
and hopes. And there are some who are living and enduring with long-term sickness, debilitating conditions. And Paul is saying, look, life has its frustrations and its sadnesses. They're not the end. Eternity changes everything. I was reading my Bible times this week, Isaiah 26. And really there, the prophet says, sometimes eternity is the only thing that makes sense of this life. When there's chaos everywhere, and you think, it's the only thing that keeps you going. And so to his point here in chapter 7, some here feel trapped in their marriages or trapped in their singleness. But marriage, the highs and lows of life, the acquisition of goods, don't place too high a value on any of them. This world is passing. They're not the end. Look, singleness can spare you troubles in a crisis. This world is passing away, lastly, briefly. Marriage can bring extra concerns. Verse 32, I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. A married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman, just the same. Just the same. Well, look, if you're not married, he says, you can focus upon serving the Lord. If you're married, you've got two things to worry about, at least. Serving the Lord and serving your spouse. Your interests will be divided. That's one sense that's fairly obvious to us. Sometimes it's demonstrably so. So this week, uh, from our church family, one of our mission partners, Stan, you know, flies out to uh, uh, Central Asia as a single man, and it's much easier for him to go to the mission field as a single man. He can crack on with language learning faster, cultural assimilation faster. Alex, another mission partner here in the Middle East, would say, it's a re- it's a, I'm relieved from having the, the time constraints of helping my family assimilate because I'm a single guy. I can just crack on with learning the language much faster. And I compare those two to other friends who've gone out to the mission field with families, and it's much harder. It takes much longer to sort of learn language because you're worried about your kids settling. That's one example. But I really see what Paul is saying here. Obviously, it's not an absolute. If you're single, you still have responsibilities. You've got to work. You have responsibilities to your wider family, to parents, etc., etc. It's not an absolute, of course. But he is saying it's just another thing that's going to take up your time and divide your anxieties, cause you anxieties. Well, there's truth to that. I look at the most superficial level. I had a fun chat with a couple recently, I don't know, two years into marriage, and um, she just volunteered. She said, you know what, I, I thought that marriage would be like singleness, but better. In reality, it's a trade-off. <laughs> and husband stood next to her, sort of smiled and said, As ever, my darling, you're correct. (laughs) And we all just sort of smiled and nodded. And um, yeah, there's a trade-off. 
But whether you're married or whether you're single, here's an encouragement at least to value singleness appropriately. The lack of other concerns means that there is more time. Most churches would collapse without the work that single people are able to do. Many of the most active servant-hearted people in this church are those who are single and free from the concerns of having to please please a, a spouse. So for those of us who have families and we go and collect our kids, go and say thank you. Because overwhelmingly those over looking after the kids and teaching them are single. Say thank you. So here are three reasons Paul suggests it may be better to stay single. It may be. I'm not commanding you. I'm suggesting. I am an apostle, but I am not uh, wanting to bind your conscience on this, he says. Singleness can spare you troubles in a crisis, 25 to 8. The world is passing away, and marriage brings extra concerns. So, conclusion, well, really, it's this. Marriage is good, but maybe singleness is better. 36 to the end. If anyone's worried that he may not be acting honorably towards the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong, he feels he ought to marry, yeah, do it. Get married. There's no problem with getting married. It's certainly not sin. Who knows what they're saying at Corinth? We don't know the other end of the telephone, but he wants to reassure them. No, 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 there's nothing wrong with that. Get married. Verse 37, but look, you know, the man who settled this matter in his own mind, who's under no compulsion, has control over his own will, and he's made up his mind not to marry the virgin, probably in this case, the, his fiance. Well, maybe that man, that's, that's a good thing to do as well. This man also does the right thing. So look, here's my conclusion, verse 38. He who marries the virgin, he does right. That's a good thing to do. But if you don't marry, maybe that's better. You know, maybe that's better. Oh, look, verse 38. Uh, a woman's bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. She must, he, he must belong to the Lord. Oh, look, if you do remarry, or indeed marry, make sure you marry a Christian. Uh, as one person puts it, a Christian and non-Christian marriage is like trying to paint two different pictures on one canvas. Here's my view of life, and here's my view of life. And it's hard to do that on one canvas. But anyway, he says, verse 40, in my judgment, you're going to be happy if you stay single in that case. But I'm not wanting to bind your conscience here. So let me say again, that the Bible insists, insists that we say marriage is good, singleness is good. It insists we say both. Paul here suggests maybe, maybe singleness is better for serving the Lord. And certainly for some, you want to give it some thought. Now, of course, there are those who would also testify, look, my marriage gives me resources. I can carry on in the chaos of life because of the calm at home. I can exhaust myself serving the Lord because I'm refreshed in my marriage. There'll be those testimonies too. And it's not Paul's only word upon marriage. But here... His assumption is, in all three of the arguments, it takes quite a lot of effort to be married. And so certainly, given a time of crisis, don't do it. And for us who are not, I don't think, in a time of crisis, do think about it. Because it's going to take some effort. Maybe, maybe remaining single is a better way for you. But hear the tone with which that's said. It's not an imperative, it's not a command, it's a 
Well, you ought to consider that. I guess behind it all is this thought, the knowledge of eternity, it must affect the decisions that you and I make now. It must do. Every decision, how we invest our time, our money. But here he says also, whether you marry, it will affect that decision too. Chapter 7, verse 22. The one who was free when called is Christ's slave. It doesn't matter where you are, what ethnicity, what class, whether you're married or not, verse 23 is true of you. If you're a Christian, you were bought at a price. So don't become slaves of human beings. The Lord Jesus Christ has bought you. He's paid an enormous price for you. His life, his blood, enduring the wrath of God. And so, live for him. Maybe single, maybe married. In one sense, they're neither here nor there. Should we get married, they ask? Oh, marriage is nothing, singleness is nothing. Keeping the commands of God, that's what counts. That is more important. You have a far grander title, a far grander role than George Washington. You're Christian, if you're Christian here this morning. Live for him and allow the knowledge of eternity to affect your decisions here and now. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, we thank and praise you for some of the basic truths that are here, that we are not our own, we were bought at a price, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this world is passing away, that sometimes as we stumble through the chaos of this world, how we need to know that that is true and a better world is coming. So Father, with those building blocks in place, would we live for you? Know that in this particular question, marriage, singleness, relatively speaking, they matter less than whether we trust you and obey you. Would we be about that and honor you with our bodies, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.